talk a lot about approaching your first home with an investor's mindset. But what about other aspects such as peace of mind, security and a small environmental footprint? That's what we're covering in this episode, the concept of a home as a place in which we can thrive. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy a workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today's episode was prompted by an email we received from listener John Cullen. He says, I quote, if I have any constructive criticism, cheeky bastard, but anyway, um, (laughs) about your content, understanding, of course, that there is a focus on investment success quality. I think that there are more architectural space planning and site permaculture self-sufficiency these things may be more interesting to many listeners. There are probably a few listeners who want a long-term family home and need to know what to look for to ensure their property delivers for their mind, body and soul. Some of these qualities may become increasingly valuable to future buyers as rising living costs push a lot of the things we take for granted further into the realms of luxury. One day, the most valuable space in your place may need to be green. Now, we have asked a special guest along to guide us in this discussion. We'll introduce him in a moment. But first, Megan has a special building behind her in the video. What is it? Well, you know, you know, I like to put something interesting in and topical if I can, if I can find something that relates to our guests. And this is one of the projects that our guest is heavily involved in. In fact, he leads the team. And this is Nightingale Yambook which is due for completion in 2023, and it's part of a four-community precinct being built. So I can't wait. I'm not going to go into it further, but uh, Jeremy might, um, might talk to us about that as we introduce him. So I guess that's a good opportunity, a good segue into introducing our guest. You may have heard of Nightingale Housing, and if you haven't, obviously Jeremy will help us here. We've asked one of the co-founders, Jeremy McLeod, to join us today. But his credentials are that he's also the founding director of Breathe, a studio perceived by their peers as one of Australia's leading sustainable architectural practices and also head of partnerships at Goodbye Gas. So he's Hello. big. Just let the hello, <laughs> Jeremy. Big I'm on naked. sustainability and helping us here. Big so. intro. <laughs> Thank you for coming along. No, thanks heaps for having me. Um, thanks, Megan. Thanks, Veronica. And um. Thanks for taking the time to kind of, you know, talk to a generation about how to get into housing. And thanks for talking to, you know, 
good old you. About, sustain, about, about sustainability. Yeah, yeah. We felt, we, well, you, you know, as Veronica said, you, you continue to make a significant contribution to the future of st- sustainability. So it's not just about what we're doing now, but what we need to plan for to do into the future. Your carbon neutral and affordable housing, putting those things together is pretty hard, I would imagine. It's actually, I mean, there's two parts to carbon neutrality. I mean, and, and my most recent role at Goodbye Gas is really about, you know, a small startup that is trying to help electrify the nation. So it's, you know, it's basically, it's about, you know, home electrification and, and doing it really easy, easy. So, so helping people do that incredibly easily. So if you think about, uh, the built environment being, sorry, Veronica, can I just jump straight in? No, straight in. I'm so much we want to ask and there's so much you've got to offer. Before before you do though, I mean, Jeremy, I've interviewed Jeremy on the elephant in the room. It's hilarious. You said basically let him go and we won't have to say a thing. Me and I will not have to say a thing for the rest of the interview. But Which the is one hard. Thing is, Let's just admit that's hard. <laughs> it is. It is hard for us. But it's pulling together. The reason Jeremy's such a great guest to have and why, you know, we get to let him talk in a minute is because what he's doing is pulling in, uh, like as Megan alluded to there, we're talking about affordability, helping people get into home ownership. That's one aspect of this. We're also talking about sustainability and, and creating good environments for ourselves and, and uh, places in which we can really just exist in, in a beautiful way, right? But there's also this idea about our place in the planet uh, and what impact we're having on the in the greater scheme of things and whilst we Megan and I do bang on a lot about um investment fundamentals when you're buying your first home because financially you've got to make good decisions early on that's what sets you up for the future I think where we get to with this conversation is that these are not mutually exclusive concepts and I think this is I love this letter from John to prompt us to have this um, interview or this conversation. And so now I'm just going to hand it over to you, Jeremy, and we might not say another word. Go. Uh, no, I'm sure that surely it's <laughs> going to be a great conversation, but, but beautiful um, introduction, Veronica. That's absolutely right. You, you know, and if you think about Nightingale Housing as, a, as an organization, it's triple bottom line housing. So it's got to be sustainable. It's got to be about community for the people that live there and how it fits into the existing community because you don't want something that kind of, you know, uh, creates a, a wedge between the residents and community from day one. But thirdly, it has to be financially sustainable. And, um, you know, and ha- ha- what does that look like? And importantly, you know, the way that we view that is through the lifetime of the mortgage. So it's not just about the day one purchase price. Um, it's also about um, how much it costs to live in that uh, dwelling across the lifetime of your mortgage. So yeah, I agree totally. If it doesn't work financially, it's not going to work, right? Um, I find that I really interesting. The- um, sorry, I know I was meant to be quiet, but I just, my brain just keeps going, <laughs> no, what, 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 No, what? no, no, you know, um, you're not, Veronica. You're not. <laughs> but, but, I, but what I find really interesting is back in the 90s, um, back when I was working for one of the big five accounting firms, there was the triple bottom line accounting sort of movement, which, which bought sustainability more from an environmental awareness, I think, point of view when that was first introduced back in the 90s. And here we are that has actually translated into the housing environment, just not a corporate um, environment, but into the housing environment. I love that. I love that that's come across into where we actually live. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, like with Nightingale Housing, it's been a very, very interesting journey to, to go on that, you know, to, to try to achieve that. And then what I was going to say before about goodbye gas was that to John's question, you know, not everyone wants to live in a in an apartment in um 
you know, in Marrickville or in Brunswick. And some people want to live in existing houses. And Goodbye Gas is about electrification. And so how how do everyday Australians living in freestanding houses, how do they make choices to be sustainable? And so um, we, can, we can all do that through all of our decisions uh, from, you know, who we bank with and, you know, which banks lend to, you know, do they lend to fossil fuel projects? And you can go to market forces and, and look at their website to tell you, you know, which banks are lending and which banks are divesting. And that can, you can see you can make really important choices there. You, where do you put your superannuation, you know? And so, again, you can look at um, superannuation, uh, you know, companies like, uh, like Future Super or Australian Ethical that, you know, refuse to invest in fossil fuels. Um, you know, we don't all, all think about, is it? Because that's we're not directly investing our superannuation funds. We're relying on the fund managers to do that. Um, but we can have an impact by by making decisions. I mean, the fascinating thing is, I used to be a card carrying vegan. You know, wouldn't wouldn't accept a takeaway coffee cup. Uh, would never accept a plastic bag. And um, and so I was, you know, you know, I, I guess I was so extreme in my views, or I was definitely super so left in what I did. It, it seemed like a, an exclusive club. And I think that, you know, my journey through Nightingale has been that if we're going to win in this um, race to kind of stop, you know, our global temperatures rising beyond 1.5 degrees, we need everyone to play, right? And we need everyone to have the ability to win and we need sustainability to be mainstream. And, and what's the biggest, what are the big, what's the biggest issues of our day? And that's carbon. And so I've stopped focusing on every little thing, you know, and instead I've started to focus on what are the big things that we can all win on. And so, yeah, like you, you, your choice of um, where your money sits in superannuation is actually much more important than what you eat. Wow. You know, it's actually much, much more important than whether you're driving an EV or a uh, four-wheel drive. So think about, think about the, the, the quantum of money and how that's invested. So that's incredibly important. It's also really easy for anyone to make that change. Were well, you um, talking leverage? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, Veronica, like massive leverage. Um, and we're seeing, yeah, superannuation companies, you know, um, a lot of them all divesting from fossil fuels now, you know, and, and deciding to invest in things like uh, affordable housing, you know. So, uh, you know, like wind farms, you know, solar, um, you know, storage, you know, like so, so it's, it's very, you know, like I think, I think that things are, things are looking up. And but we've all got a, a part to play in that. And I think we all need to just kind of, you know, spend five minutes online asking ourselves what, do we know what our superannuation company invests in? It could be those little tweaks, can't it? It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I love that you said that you were a card-carrying vegan, but through your journey, you found that sometimes it's just doing little things that make a collective difference as opposed to, I've got to be all or nothing. Well, also everyone hated me, right? So, you know, it's just... <laughs> it's, you need to become more likeable. Attract more yeah. flies with honey. Yeah, yeah. One of your favourite sayings, yeah. And then I think from a household point of view, if you think about all of the things you can do, you know, um, low energy, light fittings, draft stoppers, you know, uh, new insulation, you know, paint your roof white if you're in a hot suburb, you know, you can do all of those things or you can... Get rid of the gas in your house. You replace your gas cooktop with an induction cooktop. Replace your old um, uh, gas hot water service with a heat pump. And in Victoria, the state government will give you two and a half thousand dollars to do that because they're desperate to reduce our emissions. And then 
call your electricity provider and ask for 100% certified green power. So can I take a, a minute and say that um, it doesn't matter who you're with, but if everyone listening to this could just pause for one minute, cause their, call their power provider, and even if you've got gas, don't worry about it. The electricity that you've got, if you switch to 100% green power, that is the market indicator which tells uh, the generators like uh, AGL and Energy Australia and Origin that have coal and gas infrastructure, it tells them that you don't want to buy that. You want to buy uh, wind and solar and hydro. And it forces them to put no more large-scale renewables in the marketplace. So if you want to have a massive impact beyond uh, your diet, beyond your choice of vehicle, you know, straight after you got off the phone from your super company, call your electricity provider and ask for 100% green power, not 100% carbon offset power, not 100% smile power, not 100% whatever it is that they're selling today, 100% certified green power that's independently audited by the government. Um, so yeah, that's that's the homework for everyone. And if you could do that, that would be I would be greatly appreciative of that. Just a quick question: Is there one source um, that anybody can go to to go right? I want to I want to ramp up every decision I make, every little thing I do. I want to make sure it has maximum impact. Um, one source of truth here that you can go to and say right, that's the website I work out which banks are investing in you know sustainable. That's the website I I work out which future, you know, which uh, super uh, admiration funds have ethical investing or whatever. Um, you know what I mean? Like, is there one source of truth for any of this stuff? Yeah. But for superannuation funds and banks, I use marketforces.org. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, we'll put this in the show notes. We'll put a little uh, download in the show notes. And then um, for power suppliers, I use um, Greenpeace. So Greenpeace have a, have a website which talks to you about the greenest power suppliers in the country. Um, but even if you're with a, one of the dirty big three, you can still, um, you know, you can still ask them to provide 100% green power. And I've got to admit that if you think about AGL and the kind of recent um, movements by, you know, uh, impact investors or investor activists like Mike Cannon Brooks, I think that we're going to see AGL actually pivoting ideally into a renewable future. And so I think that the, those big three generators are going to be really important for the future of this of this country because they've got incredible infrastructure. We just need them to shift from fossils into renewables, you know, um, <laughs> or shift their board from fossils. Yeah. These, uh, these, these big, um, these big organizations take a long time to shift, but as you say, it's the consumer that drives the demand. And if the demand is shifted from one place to another, then, then the board will respond. Um, it, it just takes that. I, I guess if I think about things as a consumer and you may not be able to answer this and please feel free not to. Is there much of a cost difference if you do go down that path of, of requesting the, the certified green? Yeah, I pay about four and a half cents a kilowatt hour more for my power using 100% green power. So for, for context, you know, I was paying 29 cents a kilowatt hour and now I'm paying uh, yeah, whatever that is, 33 and a half cents a kilowatt hour for 100% green power. Um, so it's, I mean, it, it's as, as a percentage, it's not insignificant. Um, but if you're actually <laughs> thoughtful about how you use uh, your power, and also if you have a look um, at um, the Greenpeace website about who are those suppliers providing the 100% green power, you might find a more competitive price. You know, if you move over to 
uh, you know, a company like Momentum or something like that. Okay. So that, that's some really good ideas for people to to take steps immediately. And and I guess you know we're thinking about our audience is very much you know first home buyers. They're they're looking to make a decision to get into the market for the for, for the first time. But as renters, they could potentially make some of these changes. But when they're looking at um, when first home buyers are looking at a property, often they're you know very limited in terms of budget and and have to be you know quite quite tight. Um, what are some of the tips that you could maybe give first home buyers on what to look at when they're they're looking at a new property? What are, what are some of the aspects that could help them to be both conscious of the environment and uh, look at sustainability, but within the, the confines of their budget? Well, yeah, I think it's and it, I think mean, you got to work out whether it's a short term play or a long term play. But let's assume you're thinking that you're going to be there for a while and that you might at some point be able to. Um, you know, tweak the house or whatever. But you know, generally, you know, make it the way that that the way that I would start. Or look, if my daughter's looking for a house, you know, it's on realestate.com on map view, and we look for you know, we look for properties on east west streets. The aspect uh, that the yeah, that have their backyards facing north, and then once you know, once she's identified those in the right price range in the right location for her. Then we go back through and we look at the floor plans together and we say, are the living rooms facing, you know, north or are the bedrooms facing north? And, you know, invariably it's always like the toilets and the uh, laundry is facing north. But, you know, you think about, you you, you look at the plan and you say, well, Not the kitchen so and dining room. Not so much air coming through that toilet window <laughs> is there. <laughs> no, no, but. Because that's but what you're looking, looking for, is it? You're looking for natural light and airflow when you're looking at that aspect. Yeah, correct. So, and the ability to connect a living space to the north. So, uh, yeah. So, if, if there's a little toilet or a bathroom uh, on the north, but there's the but the dining room and the living room and the kitchen, and kind of have the ability to easily connect through to the north, then um, you know they're the they they're the ones that kind of make the shortlist. You know, because you know orientation is you know just so important. The other thing that we look at, I mean, surprisingly, is actually. Um, canopy tree cover and what sort of trees are there so in a suburb uh, like Brunswick you know um, you know when it's 38 degrees you know uh, according to the Bureau of Meteorology it's 63 degrees on the street here because there's no canopy tree cover it's really really hot and fierce uh, whereas in uh, Northcote which is for you Sydney siders you know uh, it's only like uh, three kilometers east of here but it has good canopy tree cover and the streets, you know, in fact, the entire uh, microclimate in that suburb is four degrees cooler. I have when never you thought it, of that. Veronica, have you yeah. ever, I mean, I look at it from an aesthetic point of view, but I've never thought at it from a cooling point of view from I've on the treescape. Like even if you walk through the botanical gardens and you're walking out in the sun and then you walk into sort of a, a grove of trees and you can feel the temperature drop. And it's not just the shade. It's, it's every, it real, does feel like you're walking to a different climate. Well, that's that's transpiration, Veronica. That's the the moisture comes off the back of the leaves, and as the air passes over it, that moisture evaporates, just like an evaporative cooler. So it's literally a natural evaporative cooler. So it it is literally cooler. And I mean, you imagine living on the east coast in Sydney compared to you know um, being <laughs> being in the west in Sydney. Like it's it's you know in peak summer, it's fifteen degrees different. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. I remember once driving out my ex-in-laws 
live out in Kellyville, right? And one day I got in the car, it was 26 degrees in Balmain, and then I got out there, and when I got, I, I literally looked, I didn't even open the car because I had the air conditioning on, of course, and, and before I looked, I looked at the temperature, it was 36 degrees, yeah. and I opened the door, I degree melted difference. out of that car. I mean, it was phenomenal, <laughs> yeah. Like you're in and Brisbane, so, Veronica. I know. <laughs> it was like, jeez, what about, but... You I know, have trouble it's funny. getting Veronica to come to Brisbane because it's so hot. Oh, I, I am visiting over Easter, but, you know, it's had to wait for things to cool down. But, you know, the thing is at my house, for instance, I've got two jacarandas, the neighbours, jacarandas, not my jacarandas, but they overhang my house, both of them. And both of those bloody trees are stopping me from getting solar panels. That's so annoying. But it is lovely to have every window I look at my house, uh, there's green. And I'm in a very urban environment. It's a bit like Brunswick. It's Newtown in Sydney. It's amazing how many trees there are here, though, amazingly enough. But um, so there's good things and bad things. <laughs> there's pros and cons of having the tree. It's stopping me from getting solar uh, solar power. But um, but anyway, I wouldn't swap them, even though they're a punish of a tree, Jacaranda. <laughs> so beautiful <laughs> in November, l- though, aren't they? <laughs> and and look, the other thing to, to – oh, it is incredible, you know, coming up, you know, like when you fly over and you kind of look down and you see the colour, it's incredible. But um, I was also going to say that, that that if the trees are deciduous, then you can kind of get the best of both worlds. So that, um, you know, if you think about a house with some sort of established garden and that has deciduous trees to the north of it or to the west of it, the trees do so much heavy lifting in terms of cooling the house down in summer. But also as they lose their leaves in autumn, it's kind of beautiful. But then in winter, it lets the sun in. So it so I think don't discount the um, the garden when you're looking at the house because that mature tree uh, it might be a pain in autumn but it might also save you a lot in your heating and cooling. Such a good point, and this is one thing that really drives me nuts when you see new subdivisions. They take out yeah. every yeah, they take tree, everything out. Yeah. Oh my God, it's like a moonscape, you know. And and I think I find that shocking. Um, that is allowed for starters. I know it's efficient. I get that, but it's not efficient for the planet, is it? No, and also it's. I think it. You know, if you think about, um, I saw some data a few years ago, and I'm sure you two have got a more intelligent view on this. But it was that if you were, um, if you were buying an apartment or selling an apartment near uh, a park with a park outlook, it didn't matter what the orientation. It added 11 percent to the sales price or the value of that property. So you could appreciate that. You know, obviously, a, a canopy tree is not going to be the same quantum as a park, but it it adds value, um, you know, perceived or real to that property. Yep. Well, yep. even if it's perceived, it brings more buyers in, and that's in ultimately what ends up with more value. Um, so and there's certainly yeah. a north aspect, as you say. Whether that aspect is from a freestanding house, or a lot of our listeners are looking at apartments, and and that orientation of of that north northeastern sort of aspect where you can get the breezes and the natural light. And as the, the sun comes more into the northern sky in winter, you get the, the heating effect of the sun. Um, when it's in the summer sky, it's a little bit behind or on top of the building, you get less of that direct light. So all of these things, you know, I used to, when I was, before we had great iPhones, smartphones, all that sort of stuff, I used to walk around with a printout of the sun's trajectory at different po- parts uh, at times during the year. So you could actually stand in in the property and go, all right, well, at this time of year, this is where the sun's going to be. How does that affect, you know, all those sorts of things. And, and a client could actually kind of go, all right, well, I can see why, yeah, I can see the sun would come into here in winter. It'd be lovely, but it won't come in here in summer, therefore it won't overheat. Um, and that makes a big difference to your cooling and your heating bills. 
and 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 your airflow. If you don't have to close your in- windows and have air conditioning on, then you're saving a lot of electricity, both cost-wise and and consumption-wise. So that those sorts of things can have a really big impact. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think that it's. I mean, Brisbane's an interesting city in that it seems to be. The it's a apart- fascinating city, isn't it, Jeremy? It is. No, I love it. But um, also, it seems like there's a really good um, built heritage there where um, people historically used to design for the solar conditions. So um, you think about the Queenslander, you know, big, deep veranda to be able to solve for the sun, you know, elevated to be able to let air move, you know, through and under the building. And even kind of, you know, apartment buildings, you know, or office buildings that were built through the 60s, you know, with you know, really clear shading, you know, to the glazing, you know, in the north and the west. Um, I do think it might have lost its way. Um, there's a lot of glass towers happening in Brisbane at the moment. So the the, the one thing about a north-facing apartment or um, unit or flat is to actually have a look at is the is the glass shaded um, during peak sun? So so during you know midday or three p.m. in summer, and um and if not, you know. You know, can, can you shade that glass from the outside? So, in newer buildings with owners corporations, if it's just a glass tower, you can't do that. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be buying a north facing uh, or a west facing apartment in a curtain walled glass tower um, because I think that It'll will be just a be box. that'll just be <laughs> yeah tough tough work. You're going to be paying for it um, for, forever through your energy bills and you know and the plan will be paying for it. So. Um, if it's a if it's an old block of flats at the balcony outside, can you put an external canvas awning on it or something like that? Something cool with you know some stripes, maybe you know like lean lean into the error, um, you know, and maybe that will solve that for you, you know. But you want to you want to stop the summer sun hitting your north and western windows from the outside. Putting curtains or blinds inside, it's too late. Still gets the the hot it's, air in, doesn't it? Well, once the once the UV hits the glass, it converts to infrared. So, you know, it's like sitting in a in a car in summer, like with the yeah. So you've got to start. You've got to shade the glass before um, the sun hits it in summer. I just want to pick up on that because we do give tips, and so, certainly in your first home buyer guide, we we talk a lot about how to deal with real estate agents, and and what they are particularly well versed in doing is overcoming objections. Now, one one of the objections that you might, you know, armed with this new knowledge that that Jeremy has given us about thinking about how the sun hits glass, if if that was a, a something that you mentioned to an agent during inspection, they may very well respond with, "Oh yeah, but you can just close the curtains and put the air conditioning on." So again, that's that's a job to sell the property to overcome objections, and it's important to have your little radar on when you're talking to an agent to go. Oh, but hang on, is that how I want to live or do I actually want to live with my windows and doors open and with natural light and airflow? So just keep your radar switched on when you're talking to an agent because they will always help you overcome any objections or any anything that you think might be a reason not to buy the property. Stick to your guns there. Megan, if you look at that beautiful building behind you designed by Brief, you'll see that there are awnings which are coming down in the balconies. This is a west facing. You'll see that the windows, yeah, that's right. And you see that the windows have uh, like little uh, shading hoods around the windows. So, you know, again, and you can see the shadow being cast from those. So and lots of green to, there to, yeah. to help cool as well. Yeah, correct. Aesthetically beautiful, but um, yeah, it has a practicality to it as well. Yep, yeah, sure. 
question on that actually because this is you know there's a, like that complex in Sydney in Central Park for instance it's it's covered in green and um you're probably familiar with it Jeremy there's also there's a, a, a little tiny row of terraces about three of them I think um in Erskineville which is a suburb next to where I live in Newtown and they have completely green roofs and I look at them and I just think to myself water like I wear, I you know, I get the idea about having a green roof and green walls and all the rest of it, but I also know the damage that water can do to a building. So how do you sort of get the best of both worlds? How do you make sure if you're going to put a green roof on or a green wall or whatever, and or have you know hanging hanging green coming down from a planter box which is really high up? How do you? I, I know you can probably say, oh, in the waterproofing, but there's obviously We've there would seen have to be those something design. many, many times. Yeah, there would have to because the waterproofing is is yeah, you will fail. There's got to be something the design that can mitigate having those, you know, water seep into the building. Uh, I know this is sort of probably beyond the <laughs> what we were originally. No, no, no. no. But, I think I think I think it's really important because you know obviously when you buy an apartment, you're also buying you know buying into part of the owners' corporation and the costs of maintenance and operations of the building. So I think firstly it's worth you know like one Central Park. It's a you know. It's a beautiful building designed by Jean Nouvel, um, but the way, you know, and, and the greenery is incredible on that, but it's an expensive system. So, you know, it, it has water dripping down those stainless steel wires and there's kind of, you know, drainage trenches all the way down and there's people have to abseil up and down the building to maintain it. So, um, so you can't easily get to it to maintain it. Um, the buildings that we work on, you know, are... Uh, we design the greenery to be able to be maintained by the occupant within their balcony. So you can go out and trim that. The other thing is that the type of greenery that we have on buildings, um, you know, are generally climbers or clingers. So on a concrete or a brick or a masonry building, uh, we use clingers like uh, like ficus. You know, you've seen a lot of that in Brisbane, no doubt, Pagan. But, um, you know, um, and so ficus just climbs on on the building without uh, without other infrastructure. And it has a kind of root system, so you don't have to water it up. It, it, it just has one planter box that it will grow from. Um, and then uh, if we've got, uh, uh, you know, like on the commons where the north face of the building has wisteria growing up, up it to shade the building, um, it, we use chains as the kind of growing media for the wisteria there. And then we have planter boxes outside of the building line. So, you know, um, and then that, they sit over decks, so in the event that the planter boxes should fail or should leak they're they're leaking outside the building you know so there's 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 greening and there's greening and then yeah i've I've seen a lot of and we do do a lot of extensive green roofs as well and to be totally honest yeah i mean our approach is just a belt and braces approach so we have you know two layers of waterproof membranes we have it flood tested um you know um but to be totally honest you know uh we you know like you know one in three of our buildings that we hand over have a leak issue and they're back there digging it up, finding it. Um, you know, they're using, you know, detection system to 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 find it. Um and so thinking through how you can easily use pods and pavers to get to those and fix it. I think that so we use two layers of membrane and we rely a lot on um human expertise. But even for us where we pay a lot of attention to that, it is, you know, it can be uh, you know, a pain in our ass to kind of you know, solve for it. And it, and then the other thing about water is that, you know, we use um, rainwater to water those things. And our, our view, particularly in a place like, um, 
you know, let, let's say like, uh, like Brunswick or Marrickville or, you know, or, you know, a very hot place, we think that because of the urban heat island effect, it's actually really critical to actually put green infrastructure in there. So, um, my view is that if we need to use water to cool the city, then, you know, uh, so be it. And ideally that's, um, that's grey water and recycled water. But yeah, I, I think that, um, we've still got a way to go in Australia, I think in terms of expertise to kind of, you know, make sure that they don't, you know, that they don't like. Certainly a growing trend, you know, and I see some of the, um, even homes that have been designed with rooftop gardens becoming more prevalent now and largely over balcony areas and garages, which means that if there is any leak or, um, breaching of the, the waterproofing, then at least it's, it's, you know, an external area to, to a degree. But I think what I'm hearing you say that our listeners can take away is when you're looking at a, a building that might potentially have some green spaces that have been built into the design is to just be a little bit careful about um, where that will leak into if there is a breach of the waterproofing. And, and as you say, in good design, that would be to an external area like a balcony or or, or over the paving, as we can see with, with the design behind me if you're watching on YouTube. Um, so I guess just being a little bit switched on for our buyers and maybe in their inspection checklist, just doing that little bit extra of, okay, if something does breach waterproofing, where is that water going to go rather than just a flat out, oh, don't want to touch it because there might be a problem, but where, where might it leak to? And make sure you have a look at the owner's corporation budget. So what's the, you know, what's the, what's the operational budget in terms of kind of, you know, garden maintenance, what's the maintenance budget like? And that should give you a hint. And also, has the owners corporation had to, had to spend any money on rectification of leaks? You know, and that will give you the that'll give you an indication because you know you know. So so has there been no waterproofing issues, or has there been waterproofing issues? Yep. And you'll find that through the body corp record search or owners corporation record search strata report. Sorry, in New South Wales or body corp record search in Queensland. So that information is actually able to be to be researched, but you do have to know to ask. For the, for the information. Now, let's just quickly talk about that urban heat island effect because this is something we've read about, particularly in Melbourne. Um, there was some shocking um, data that came out around some suburbs that appear to have like less than 5% tree canopy coverage or something. I just you know, don't even know how you, how you could survive there. But anyway, <laughs> people obviously do. Shocking, isn't it? <laughs> You know, but this is something to be we're, really we're pretty, aware of. We're pretty tough down here, Veronica. Yeah, you guys are tough, <laughs> man. You survived a lot of um, lockdowns. Yeah, <laughs> strong spines. <laughs> I, I'm just this, this marshmallow lives in Sydney. Um, but, but what what is interesting to keep an eye out for, and this is particularly because I know a lot of first-home buyers will look at, you know, new subdivisions, you know, and, and house and land packages, just to be very aware of this urban heat island effect so i thought maybe you could talk to that but also you know once they knock all these trees down you know you're going to spend a long time waiting for trees to grow <laughs> it's it's a quick thing um so if someone really does want to buy that type of property i mean i guess what could they do but also what to be aware of and maybe you know i don't know would you ever consider your, one of your daughters, you've got a few daughters, haven't you? I've got um, four, yeah. got four daughters, right. Um, would you ever consider encouraging one of your daughters to buy in one of those those new subdivisions without a tree in sight? <laughs> All right, so let's talk about... I think um, I know the answer, but anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> leading I mean, let's, question, let's, Veronica. Let's, <laughs> let's, 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 
Let's zoom out and zoom back in. Um, the urban heat island effect, uh, you know, is a function of when you lose things like canopy tree cover and you replace it with um, with asphalt, uh, with concrete wood paths, with uh, black tile roofs. All of those surfaces, the concrete, the asphalt, the black tile, when the heat hits them, their dark colours or their masonry, and they, they absorb the heat. And then over time, uh, so over a course of days or weeks, particularly through, through summer, obviously, they start re-radiating that heat out, even at night time, uh, which is kind of, you know, it becomes incredibly kind of, you know, unusual. Um, but when you have that heat radiating out from all of those surfaces at the same time as the heat's coming down, you get incredibly hot surfaces uh, on the street and kind of unbearable. Um, and so there's a really easy way to deal with that, um, which is one, canopy tree cover. Uh, two, less asphalt uh, and less concrete. Um, and then, so, you know, we're working on a couple of, um, uh, you know, designs, you know, like we're, we're working on a project in Dalesford at the moment. And that project, you know, we're trying to take, you know, we're creating these pedestrian paths, you know, granitic sand, beautiful walking paths to the front doors of the houses. And then we're relegating the cars around the back. So vehicle access out the back, pedestrians out the front through kind of, you know, beautiful landscape space. And of course, we're saving every tree that's there. And we're designing, you know, the estate around, you know, where the, where the houses are. What can be done about that? You know, simple things like if you're in the west of Sydney, we shouldn't be putting in black roofs, right? We should be putting in, as we get to hot suburbs, we should be putting in white coloured roofs, you know, um, you know, and particularly pushing up to Queensland, you know. So the further north we go in this country, the lighter our colour our roofs are. The only place that should have black roofs in Australia is probably Hobart, you know. And then if you were thinking about what's the right kind of, you know, you know, so think about it as, you know, you want to absorb heat, where would that be? Hobart, where do you want to um, reflect heat? That's going to be, you know, Brisbane and in between there should be kind of a you know a stratification of those colors so there would be an easy way to solve that to some extent would I encourage my daughters to live there you know would I think that that's a good outcome and the answer is no and that's because you know um you know I think that the three of us probably understand kind of broader macroeconomics to some extent that that the cost of living isn't just about the purchase price on day one of a house and land package so sure, you can buy a house and land package that's, you know, four bedrooms, four bathrooms, you know, four car spaces, you know, at the edges of nowhere for $400,000. Congratulations. Um, you might need to drive an hour and a half uh, every day to get to work and an hour and a half every day to get back. And maybe that's different now because of, you know, because of COVID. But presumably, you're still going to need to go to the doctor occasionally. You're still going to need to go to the shops you still, your kids are still going to need to go to schools, um, all of those things that you need to get to. And if you have a family, you know, your partner is going to need a car. So that's two cars. The average cost of a car in Australia is over $11,000, you know, to own, operate, insure, maintain. So that's $22,000 a year. You know, what's that look like on a mortgage? And then, you know, the way that you build a big house at the city's edges is to design it cheaply, build it cheaply. Um, and, you know, insulate it cheaply and glaze it cheaply. And so, you know, what do you need in a house to be sustainable or to reduce your operating costs? You need good windows and you need good insulation and you need good design to consider where does the sun come from and where do the breezes come from? I think the frustrating thing for 
us as architects looking at a lot of the housing that's done. We don't, I mean, I don't have an issue with with the idea of you know affordable housing being built. What, I, what I'm frustrated is that you could build a house that's beautiful, that's twice as good, that's half the size, that's still twice as big as anyone actually needs. Like we have some of the biggest housing in the world. So, you know, um, and size matters, right? So, um, yeah, so Veronica, to, to, to be honest, no, I, I would say to my daughter, spend the same amount of money on an apartment or a flat um, or a little townhouse or a villa unit closer to the city, close to where your friends are, where your family are, where your, where your school or your education is, where your community is, all the things that you need to, do to access and live your life. Like, why do we want to live in a city? Because cities offer opportunity and they, uh, and they offer, you know, great things to happen because we're closer together and we connect to each, to each other. I think the problem sometimes in historic estates, and I know that they're trying to get better over time. I know they are getting better over time, but historically there's an incredible disconnect. Everything happens at, you know, 50 kilometers an hour. You know, you drive into your driveway, you drive into your garage, the roller door comes up, the roller door comes down behind you. You walk through your garage, sit down in your uh, in your lounge, you have a beer, you know, and then if you need something, you go back and you get in your car and you drive back out past your neighbours at 50 kilometres an hour. So um, Hopefully I don't only it, after one beer, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's a great and place. And it was a light one. Um, yeah, so... Um, you know, and we've known about this as a as a planning problem in Australia, you know, since 1965, you know, Robin Boyd wrote The Australian Ugliness, you know, in the 60s. Oh, really? So we, we, we've known about the problems of sprawl for a long time, and um, it's been politically expedient uh, to just keep on widening our belts and to provide um, massive problems. They're always the places that have um, incredible costs in terms of infrastructure, uh, incredible issues around, you know, like social issues and policing issues, you know, and all of those costs that are essentially borne by the entire country because of bad urban planning. So interesting. I mean, I grew up in suburbia and I hated it before I even realised it was an alternative. <laughs> and, and it, you know, but clearly lots of other people love it because, mind you, it's not one of those, you know, there's trees and it's obviously was de- it was developed around about this time that it, that book was written, that would have been around about the subdivision. Um, but the point being that when I go to a school reunion, I'm shocked at the amount of people that actually buy their parents' houses. Like, that's weird. So, But, however, I, I lived at the end of a train line, so there was connection. You know, it wasn't... Well, that, well, that, I think that's a bit different, right? So yeah, you, yeah. you had the ability as a kid or as a teenager to be mobile. I, I think that for... Uh, you know, if you talk to um, kids of, of um, new Australians that have come out here, you know, they've migrated to Australia, they've found their way out to the city's edges and they sit around their entire life waiting for their parents to be home to drive them somewhere. Yeah. Because they, because they can't go anywhere. Yeah. So I'm not a huge fan of suburbia, but, but I know a lot of Australians love it. But let's go back to John's email. Um, he did say, you know, talking about permaculture, and that's something that we really haven't discussed yet in this conversation so do you want to just explain to us what permaculture is and and i guess is it relevant how you know does it help if and what is it does it help what can we do go for it yeah no look uh, i mean 
Yes, it helps. What is it? It's the idea that you could have um, essentially you could do gardening or food production in a closed loop system. So if you think about, you know, if you had a little aquaponics set up where you had some barramundi in there and then the as the barramundi would, you know, leave the excrement in the water, you would use that water to then go and um, uh, fertilize your lettuce and your lettuce would come from there. And then you would eat the lettuce, but the leftover lettuce you would throw into your compost and your worm farms. Um, you might have some yabbies in the barramundi. You'd take some of the worms and feed the yabbies, or the compost would then um, be used to grow some grapes. And then you would you would eat the grapes and the leftover grape leaves from the vine. You would feed to the barramundi. Um, uh, so so you know you could start to see that this thing would be a closed loop system, um, which is a really you know it's a beautiful. Uh, elegant diagram you know um, about how each one of us individually could handle our own food needs and i think that that's i think it's a really beautiful idea i also think it's you know i'm a very good friend of yost backers who um did the the greenhouse yeah. at Fed Square, which yeah. was about that it was a food positive house right it generated more food than the two occupants who lived there could actually ever consume and they were running a restaurant there with food they were growing it was off the chart but it takes someone with the tenacity uh, of Yost and Joe, Joe Barrett and Matt Stone who were living in the house to be able to make that possible. Um, and so I think for a lot of us who have other careers, other lives, kids, you know, a lot of commitments, I think um, you've really got to want to lean into that idea of permaculture because it takes time and energy. I think that, again, um, my view would be that, you know, the lowest the lowest barrier for me, I think, to 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 resolve a kind of healthy closed loop food system would again to be invest your money with the right superannuation companies that invest in organic farming, that invest in high efficiency um, uh, greenhouses. You know that you know that don't waste any water. Um, you know that, that that do. You know think about think about that as think about the fact that we live as as a society of 25 million people and how do we all play to our strengths you know and not all of us can be farmers i don't mm. think i mean i think that's the point isn't it because there's a lot of effort that goes into that and if you as you say if you're working and doing all those things and can't fit another thing in there is actually other stuff you can do and I, it's an yeah, awesome so, so, point so my view would be for my young architects who are hauling us like working really really hard trying to establish themselves trying to save for you know, tr trying to trying to save for a house, trying to teach at Melbourne Uni, trying to do all of these things at the same time, really stretch for time, still trying to have good relationships with their family and friends. I would say to them, you know, um, in fact, I know what most of them do, which is they have their super in the right company. They buy 100% green power. They try to eat a plant-based diet, but they're not um, idealistic about it. So they'll eat you know, uh, fish occasionally, they'll eat eggs, they try not to eat heaps of red meat. Uh, they'll have, they'll grow what they can in their house, which might be some herbs, but none of them that I know of have, and these are people that work at Breathe Architecture that are 100% committed to sustainability, but none of these people that have massive impact in our society, as far as I know, have the ability or the time to be able to spend, you know, running a permaculture garden, or well, they don't have the space in urban Melbourne either. But I think that, you know, if if John or other people have the space and they want to do that, 
I think that's incredible. Um, and I take my hat off to you. Literally, I take my hat off to you. But um, but yeah, I think that I think it's not it's not that realistic for most people that live an urban lifestyle. So it's like a little bit of an indulgence, by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> because because you're sort of checking out. You use and you've got to be able to afford che- to check out in a way because that means it's we all have limited resource. Time is a limited resource. Right, our attention is limited. I, I, I don't think it's an indulgence, but I definitely think that it's it's niche, and I think that yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's it. I think it's a great you know aspiration thing to do, but I just don't think we can expect um, you know ninety ninety five percent of our population to do that. So it can't go mainstream. I I don't think so. Well, you know, when when we interviewed you on the elephant in the room, one of the questions I asked you was about um, your developments. And could you manufacture all your materials on site? It's a bit the same, isn't it, really? I mean... It's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, there's this uh, professor at New South Wales University, Veena, her first name is, and I think she's Indian and I cannot pronounce her surname, so apologies. Um, But she's brilliant. She's so amazing and inspirational and she creates these... She's invented these micro factories. Literally, I was reading this article on the Herald on the weekend where she has spearheaded this um, new technology where... Um, st- in steel making, replacing coke, I think it is, with basically because the the polymer, I think it's called anyway, the 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 chemicals that come out of coke coal can be created through uh, reusing or recycling tires. And now that they're about to commercialize this, and so this has been, I, and I'm like, I, I find her and everything she works on so inspirational. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's incredible, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, her name's come up a lot since then, because we talked about her. Yeah. Um, so they she had invented these um, these. It was on the the War on Waste show. That's where I sort of came across where these micro factories, and so they can they can manufacture tiles for building and little bits of furniture, all sorts of things. But we talked um, <laughs> with Jeremy about oh, would it be really great idea to have all these little micro factories on site? He's like, well, that's just not realistic. It's just not feasible. Come on, let's get real. The let's, costs let's, would be astronomical. Yep, to let's start get rid with. of our idealism. <laughs> let's be pragmatic. Well, well, I, I, the concept, I think you know, though, and, and you know, could that be commercialized in some way? Well, I think that what we talked about is the idea of you know, I think you know, one of the things that that's come from the industrial revolution has the been the idea of. Uh, the factory and automation and how do we produce complex things at lower and lower price points. And so if you if you thought that instead of, you know, manufacturing, you know, a, a Tesla, for example, on a five kilometer long production line with, you know, uh, robotics and a whole bunch of kind of, you know, machines to pull that together. Instead, you said, I'm going to, we're going to produce our own Teslas in Wagga Wagga and we're going to do some in Dubbo and some in Brunswick and some in Maryville and some in Brisbane. We're going to get a bunch of people to do that, to try and replicate that. You know, um, it would be, you know, implausible uh, at best and impossible at worst, I think, you know, um, and incredibly expensive. It's a trade-off, isn't it? Because we also talk about things like food miles and we talk about, you know, like, so the idea about buying food that's produced in a, you know, a real... Uh, What's a hundred k radius? I think even that could be too much for some people. But permaculture is basically making a like a hundred meters radius or something. Yeah. So, so just on the food mile thing, like I think that, that there's, I mean, it kills me the carbon associated with our food, right? Like walnuts or oranges from California in Australia. You got you got to be kidding me, right? 
So I think that we can do a lot around our carbon footprints by buying local and buying seasonal, you know, so rather than everything that's stuck in an air-conditioned cool room for, you know, but nine and months waiting for the next season or being flown from the other side of the world. So it's a, it's I do think that there's a that lot to be... seasonality. You know, some of us have stopped thinking about buying food in seasons. We want what we want when we want it and we'll buy what we have to from wherever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think, Veronica, to that point, you know, maybe to John's point about permaculture, the, the, uh, the 21st century solution to that, you know, for busy, you know, people trying to get their way into the housing market might be actually just saying, we're going to we're going to try and buy local we're going to really focus on what you know what does that say is it made in australia um does it come from this state you know and if it does i'm going to i'm going to try and focus on that and eat eat more seasonally yeah i said that's you know i've got lots of little things in my life that i've done um which have the no scalability because it's just me doing them <laughs> those sorts of things are part of them but the scalability, you know, in terms of my energy, my choice of energy provider and all those sort of things, exactly what you're talking about. I do that. I have ethical investments um, that have guidelines around sustainability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we can all make those decisions, which are the more scalable decisions. I love the fact that you talk about, you know, when you were young and idealistic, because I think we're all far roughly similar age here, that, you know, you were the, the lefty vegan who was, you know, really obnoxious. Um, you know, very much on your soapbox. I, I can only imagine. Um, but you know, as time goes on, we, we mellow a little bit, but we also get pragmatic about how our actions are going to have a greater import impact, I should say, and also how not to alienate people along the way. Well, I, I think that, I think that that's the thing, right? I, I tried to do everything simultaneously and I can tell you that my life was difficult, you know, and I had to make compromises all the time. And so to expect other people to do that, I think, uh, you know, would be unreasonable. And if, if the answer to solving for a climate crisis um, is to do it collectively, then we need everyone to come on a journey with us. And we're much better for everyone to do, you know, one or two big things than to have a handful of, you know, idealists doing everything. You know, it's, it's, it's much more impactful this way. And our big issue at the moment is carbon and to get to net to net zero, we have to electrify everything. And that's got to be the bit that, that we're all focusing on in the next five years. Right. Now, on that note, we would normally wrap up, except that we do have a final question for you. And it's one that if we don't ask, no, I try to wrap it up, Megan always says, we've got one more question. Do you want to ask it, Megan? <laughs> <laughs> so, Jeremy, we always like to ask our guests, because this is about informing first home buyers and, and helping them to sort of think about things that they don't know that they don't know yet. Um, so we do ask our guests, what is the one thing that you know now that you wish you had known when you were a first home buyer? I think that the issue for me, and I mean, you're going to laugh at this, Veronica. I mean, as cliche as it sounds, is that in all of my studies of, you know, affordability um, and looking at lifetime costs and, and and thinking about lifetime costs of a building and living there, the one thing that I know is that it's location, location, location. <laughs> so in, in, all, in, 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 in all seriousness, as, uh, and as much as I'd hate to say it, that if you can find a home in the right place, don't worry if it's chocolate brick or if it's green brick or if it's ugly, for your first home, that's not it. It's about like what makes a home great. It's about you know the community that you create within that house and the community that you create outside of that house. And 
if you're in the wrong spot, it's just too difficult to do that. And so, and also, I guess the other, my other comment would be around size. So don't be attached to size. You know, people in Tokyo are living in 15 square meters and loving life. You know, people in people in Hong Kong are living in 22 square meters and loving life. So um, it's okay to live smaller on your way in, because what we do know is that property in the right location appreciates. Whereas a big fat house, you know, an hour and a half from anywhere, what you might find is that it does the exact opposite. Man, you could, oh. you could be a buyer's agent with logic like that. That's so true. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeremy. A really great chat. We really appreciate you coming on. Um, and we appreciate John for reaching out and and giving us some uh, constructive criticism and, and wanting to add another dimension Always to some to of these ideas. conversations. So this is great. We really yeah, appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for coming on, Jeremy. Uh, thanks, Veronica. Thanks, Megan. Bye. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.